Uh, just a quick message to anyone who's listening to the recording of this on an audio-only platform like Apple Podcasts. We're going through some slides today, so if you'd like to see those, just head over to the YouTube channel, which will be linked, the first link in the description, basically, and you can see us talk through these slides in real time. But without further ado, Alfie, let's get into it. Today, we're talking about how you can reset and refocus your L&D strategy for the rest of this year. But really, we're going to give you a five-step framework that you can take away and apply in the future to refocus and repeat this exercise. Now, before we get into the intros and the framework itself, I really want to focus on why it's important to do this exercise of taking stock of where we are, realigning and refocusing our efforts. And it's because if we don't, there's a real risk of doing nothing. We might keep doing more of the things that don't work, which damages L&D's internal brand, affects our ability to drive impact and convince stakeholders that they should be invested. And if actually we're doing things really well, we still don't have the visibility into what we're doing well, which means we can't work out why those things land with people or do more of that. And unfortunately, it's part of human nature that we're risk and change averse, as you'll see from the stat on the screen here. 72% of people would rather keep things the same than experience any kind of change even if it would result in a positive outcome. And I think often it's this, sometimes um, we have an inherent unwillingness to change that prevents us from stopping what we're doing, taking stock, and my favorite saying, getting off the hamster wheel to take a real good look around at what we're actually doing and why we do it. And as we've got quite a few new people today, I popped in a slide to who we are. So my name is Gary Stringer. I'm the host of the L&D Disrupt podcast series, which happens live every two weeks and then is published um, to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those usual places. And I'm also the content marketing manager at How Now, a company that powers the L&D Disrupt podcast. Basically, I've spoken to, I think I calculated it the other day, Alfie, upwards of about 50, 70 L&D experts now. So really trying to bring <laughs> some of the best lessons I've learned from those people into today's session as well. And I'm joined by my wonderful colleague, Alfie Gardner, Product Marketing Manager at How Now. And Alfie, I think it'd be really useful to hear kind of who you are, what you do, what your L&D journey has been and how you've worked with a lot of L&D professionals too. Yeah, sure. Um, so hi, everyone. Um, as Gary said, my name is Alfie. I'm Product Marketing Manager here at How Now. Um, work for the same company as Gary, who power the L&D Disrupt podcast. Um, and we work in the same team as well. Um, I've been with HowNow for about three-ish years, and I started um, as a customer success manager. So I've worked with around 100 different L&D teams, um, implementing HowNow, um, shifting up their learning development strategy and supporting them on their success plans and plans for the future and implementations. Um, and in my current role as product marketing manager, I get to be nosy and speak to a lot of L&D teams, um, whether they're our customers or they're potential customers or people that we'd like to just um, pinch from other providers, <laughs> um, digging cool. into deep into what their problems are and how we can help solve them. Yeah, perfect. That is going to tee us up nicely for what we're going to discuss today, Alfie, which is problem discovery and identification. And obviously, we mentioned how now there for anyone who's not familiar with us. We're an LXP that works with fast growing companies like Checkout.com and Depop, all the way up to global enterprises like Investec and Sanofi to bring relevant learning to the flow of work where it can make an impact. Now, moving on to this five-step framework, the first port of call is probably our most important because it's the foundation for everything else we're gonna do. And that is to take stock of where we are now. And the first part of that is to reestablish the problems that need to be solved within our teams and within our business. Essentially, we're asking questions like, are our stakeholders' problems still the same? Is what we're doing still helpful to them? Have their goals or the business goals shifted? Because essentially it's a bit like playing space invaders. If the target moves and we keep shooting in the same spot, then we'll miss. But if we sit down with people, understand the problems that need to be solved and realign, then we're more likely to drive long-term success over time. Now, Alfie, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this because I think it's a bit of a wider issue around problem discovery. I know a lot of LD teams and professionals say to us that I think really diagnosing which problems need to be solved and shifting away from that order taker position is a problem and it's really relevant here so I'd love to know your your thoughts on that yeah for sure I think uh, it's um it's 
quite a common problem as well, especially amongst other roles that aren't traditionally seen as kind of revenue generating functions. Um, product marketing in my role itself is actually quite similar to this. Um, what happens is you end up taking, almost gathering an internal position that you are um, almost like an order taker, or sometimes you're there as a service function to the rest of the business, rather than a strategic value add. Um, so you end up focusing your efforts into lots of tactical work um, versus addressing like bigger strategic value positioning. Um, and this problem, as I said, isn't unique to learning and development. It's something that product marketers face. It's something that um, product managers I know face as well. And ultimately, this also kind of hinders our problem discovery longer term. Um, we may probe and we may ask lots of questions, um, which can sometimes be seen as perhaps like unhelpful to the people whose problems we're trying to help solve. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the most useful things that I managed to do um, moving into product marketing was actually shifting my perspective about the questions that I would ask um, to be a little bit more useful. So um, rather than learning and development slash product marketing being the solution to the problem instead being the facilitator between the problem and the potential solution and sometimes you may find that you are the gap between those two things um but rather than trying to immediately plug it yourself kind of removes you from filling that position as an internal problem solver let's say um so that you can actually kind of add value to where you actually think it's needed problem discovery is a very common problem let's say for lots of um, sales and marketing teams as well and ultimately this just comes down to asking the right questions um, and listening to people uh, rather than just trying to kind of talk over them sometimes and telling them what they, you think that they need yeah. um, there are tons of great frameworks out there as well for like good questioning like methods um, a very simple one that I like to use is the five whys um, so just keep continuing to push down and answer every question with a why until you get to the root of the problem. Um, it can get a bit annoying and repetitive, but it really does give you lots of quality kind of insight into the problem that you're really trying to solve, whether this is like working with sales teams or marketing teams directly as a stakeholder, figuring out why didn't we hit target last quarter, for example, which might be a really um, realistic challenge that some teams have faced based on Q2 and the first quarter of the year as well. Um, and really figuring out like, what is that core skill perhaps that we need to develop or what is that core piece of knowledge that's really missing um, that could be probably the most practical. Yeah, yeah perfect. And we're gonna kind of dive into why it's worth spending all that time on that problem discovery and not glossing over it um, very shortly. And I think another thing as well at this point is we often change tactics far more frequently than we define problems. So a lot of the time we'll see that something maybe isn't working the early signs and then we'll continue to iterate on different activities without necessarily going back to redefine the problem. Yeah. And I think if we just look at this quote that Matt Bradburn from the People Collective shared with us when he was on the show, Essentially, if we're not establishing the problem first, then we put the egg before the chicken, which essentially means we go, we've got this program we've created. Can we go and find a problem that it solves? As opposed to saying, this is the problem that needs to be solved and a clear challenge where we can add value. And therefore, how do we build learning um, around that? And this kind of ties into the second part of taking stock of where you are now. And that is understanding the current perception of L&D in the business. Now, like every brand, L&D has a brand in the company that you're in, whether it's intentionally something you've created or not. And it will influence how well we are able to drive behavior change to help people reach their goals. Because although we might call it a brand, it could be more just like the perception or the way people view us. And if that's a negative, we have to try and figure out why it is and how we can turn it around. Because if we people perceive us as a function that only takes orders or if they perceive us as a function that can't help them drive impact then it's very difficult for us to not only do that problem discovery but help people do the things that drive impact in their role and then at the same time as we said at the beginning with the, the risk of doing nothing even if it's a positive brand you still need to figure out why it is because although it might have a positive sentiment it also might not be the right brand so people might just see you as the team that really grants their request to go out on days out for training as opposed to a team that solves problems for them so i think taking stock of the perception of your brand whether it's positive or negative is going to give you a great insight into how invested people are and that influences your ability to drive change 
Now, I think understanding the perception of your brand is the real mix of speaking to people and looking at data. So we really need to mix the anecdotal stories of people, how they've experienced and interacted with L&D before, but with data insights into what platforms within your learning tech stack are people using, what pieces of content have been opened by people, what kind of um, things are resonating with your internal customers. And if we understand that, we can also therefore feed that back into this overall understanding of what our L&D brand is. Now, one thing I should have mentioned at the start is that at the end of each of these sections, Alfie has put together what we're calling an MVP, minimal viable product, something you can take away and apply today to start doing more of these things in, in terms of developing your strategy. So Alfie, over to you for the, the first one of these. Oh, lovely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so one of the things actually that I've taken from another product marketing leader um, who fills a very similar role to what learning and development do within many businesses is what we'd call a listening tour. Um, and this is a very kind of informal scheduled 15 minute chat with a leader from each department. And um, this can be functional leaders or it can be kind of uh, team leaders within those functions itself. So let's say, for example, you have quite a wide sales team. Um, you may want to speak to your SDR manager and your um, account executive managers, for example, or your head of sales. Um, but what I'd really encourage is to avoid immediately talking with your C-suite. Um, their strategic goals are going to be ever so slightly different. And I think it's really valuable for us to be able to position the impact of learning and development with the learner. Um, now, our functional leaders are probably likely to understand what the day-to-day -day struggles and challenges are that that team are going to have. And a 15-minute kind of informal coffee chat with like a good structure and a bit of understanding around how we can figure out what that leader really needs support with and how LD can then be best positioned to structure it and, and offer support. Um, there's a really simple um, framework that you can use, the first of which just being three single, simple questions. Where are you as a team right now? Um, ask your SDR manager as an example. We've just hired one at How Now, for example. What are the what what was Q2 like for you? Um, what do you think were the biggest blockers to performance, for example? And um, where are you right now versus where would you like to be? And then repositioning the potential future that you'd like to see with that team. So what are your priorities for H2? Um, asking your SDR leader, what are the things that they need to see the needle move on to understand the impact of learning and development within their business? And then lastly, create a call to action with that stakeholder and ask them, how do you see us as a team, SDR manager and L&D leader, for example, yourselves, how do you see us working together? Um, and really this opens up a dialogue to be able to not only show your impact with the rest of that team at a wider level, but also to create roots rather than branches within your own business. This is really gonna help you position learning and development as a much more strategic function, but also doesn't seem like a time suck. It doesn't feel like an unnecessary piece of admin that a functional leader will have to do. It improves your relationships with them, but also helps you gather a picture and paint uh, almost like impact foundation for all of your potential learning opportunities that you could help support them with. And this kind of feedback is going to help you determine your current position, that what you're currently taking stock of and where you've been for the first half of this year, but also helps point a really useful direction um, to how you can offer functional support as well to the rest of the business. And this way you're going to be able to really show impact across that team. Yeah, and I think following that framework you mentioned, Alfie, keep it to 15 minutes, ask those three questions. That allows you to put this in as a regular uh, touch point with that team. Yes. So you could schedule a 15-minute chat every month and just tweak the questions a little bit like, are you still where we were a month ago? Um, are your priorities still the same? Do you still see us working together in the same way? And I think having that as a regular touch point is a really strong way to build a relationship but in a low friction way because it's 15 minutes of your time but you're getting a lot more value out of our relationship by investing that there's an interesting quote from really one of the earliest conversations we had on any iteration of the podcast which was with Winnie Amuaku from Hi Bob but she mentioned that to Alfie's point of not just speaking to the C-suite if we only speak to managers and directors we only get information from a specific point of view and often that's not our 
only internal customer or necessarily our end user. So allowing people to contribute their information and their opinions around the attitudes on the culture, the opinions, the KPIs for learning, the perspective on the data that we're using to guide what we're doing in our L&D strategy. And I think, yeah, that really comes back to the final bullet point on the first slide in this section, which was to collect data collectively. If you only collect it from one person or the person who's not close to the action, you really will have a quite a narrow view or something potentially built on assumption. Before we move into the second part, just to remind people, if you've got any questions you would like to leave in the chat, feel free. If you've got any experiences or tips on the conversations you've had, also feel free to share that in the chat so everyone else can benefit from those. Step two, or the second part of the framework, is really about understanding our current skills gaps. So in part one, now we know which problems we're solving, it's easier for us to understand which skills we need. But we don't know which skills we need unless we're measuring them to some extent. Now, in How Now, we do that by building a skills profile for every learner and every person in the team. And that is built on a mix of self and peer review based on a proficiency scale from one, which would be novice, to five, which would be expert. And that is something that you can regrade and readdress over time as you deliver learning. Before we kind of break into sort of the principles behind this, Alfie, that people could apply today, um, I'd love to know some of your experiences working with teams that are measuring and developing skills and if there's anything you've picked up. Yeah, so actually, one of the really interesting things I've seen at How Now customer do um, before um, uh, a few years ago, let's say, um, was actually implementing a kind of taking advantage of employee engagement um so bringing together learning development as a natural part of the employee value proposition um so this customer just added a very simple question to the end of an employee engagement survey that happened on an annual basis um and it was just a single open answer question that asked a very simple question the question was what do you want to learn at work this year and Whilst this wasn't necessarily determining a skill conversation around a specific skill or a specific set of skills, it was a real eye opener for the customer who implemented that question. Um, it helped them and supported them in determining what the priorities were for the employees across the business, but for which skills gaps the employees felt were missing and how they could then help the rest of the functional leads and the rest of the business fill those gaps. And it was also a very useful way for learning and development to naturally support its position within the business as part of the employee value proposition as well. Um, I know that there are some learning and development teams out there who either feel like an extension of the HR team or they don't necessarily feel that they fit into the rest of the people's structure within their business. And this is a really useful way of um, showing a little bit of kind of team solidarity for all of the employees who completed that survey, but also naturally created a sense of position that L&D was core and key as a part of the employee engagement kind of offering across the rest of the business. Um, and this was a very easy way of implementing a bit of a skills kind of fact finding mission across the business, but showed them a lot of data around what skills, especially core skills such as communication and negotiation and confidence with product offering, for example, that a really wide batch of their employee base were struggling with and I needed some support with. Um, and over time, they were able to kind of massage and understand exactly the elements they needed to improve and use that data to facilitate a much better skills framework within their business as well. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this idea of just asking people. It seems simple, but often if you don't have a tool in place that allows you to measure at speed and scale, what you can do is just ask people to, similar questions that what skill would you like to build, but also do you have any skills that exist outside of your role? I think when we mm -hmm. talk about closing skills gaps, there might be this mindset that it has to be a person in the marketing team that we upskill in, for example, graphic design, but we might have someone in a different team whose background is in graphic design or they have a real passion for it. And I think broadening that relationship or that vision of who can close skills gaps um, is a really useful one. Yeah. I did want to share an example quickly of how we can marry step one and step two together based on what I said about measuring the skills profile. And for example, it would be if you're in the marketing team and we sit down to do that problem discovery, and we find out two things. The marketing team's priority for the quarter is to have a lot of new product launches. And we determine that a problem they typically face is that when they launch new products, 
they don't really get enough awareness or enough coverage in relevant blogs or magazines or newsletters or social media. And what we can say is, okay, this is a real problem and a goal for the marketing team is to improve brand awareness or reach through public relations. So we might sit down with the team and measure everyone on that scale of one to five and realize that nobody within that team has a proficiency level of above three in public relations. And that really allows us to deliver relevant learning because we can say, if we're going to help the marketing team reach that goal in terms of reach of the, the new product launch, we need to upskill some of those people who are currently at three to a four or to five to really improve that expertise. And that really helps us solve a real problem and create a positive story around the impact we've had. Hmm. Now, as Alfie alluded to there, you might not necessarily always have the tool that lets you do it at speed or scale. And maybe you're a one-person L&D team, which is quite common as well. So it might take you a while to roll out and map this out. So in that mindset of the MVP, it might be more prudent for you to spend that time just working out the skills needed to reach those goals and then mapping them out on a team level. So to take that a step back, it would be, we're not creating enough press releases. Do we have the people internally who can create press releases, for example? And just taking that real step back at of what is the gap between us reaching our goal and how can we close it quickly if you don't have that tool in place to do it at speed or scale. And now that leads us nicely to our next MVP. Oh, I'm going to talk about AI and I'm, I'm sure that some people are going to have some feelings about it, but actually it can be a really useful and valuable tool. As Gary said, it, in a really small business, um, some L&D teams, for example, may I have identified the need to be able to track skills gaps and measure them as specific kind of data points across the business, but they're not quite yet ready at a level of maturity across the business or their team may not be big enough yet to do it and actually to implement them. Um, it does require quite a bit of time and dedication and a lot of capacity that if you're a solo learning development team member or if, for example, you've got a very small team or you're kind of being dragged across different elements of the business at one time, you just simply don't have the capacity to deal with those things. So for those of you who may already have like really robust and layered kind of skill frameworks and benchmarks, maybe this advice isn't best for you to start with. But if you're really hoping to introduce a very first kind of almost like baby's first skills framework within your business, then a really, really easy way to do this is to implement it using either ChatGPT or BARD, which gives a bit more up-to-date data because it's connected to the internet. Um, now, if you're a small business, you probably only really want to create skills benchmarks and frameworks using AI for roles that have a sufficient number of employees to either support the data pool or to be able to actually give realistic feedback on what this skills framework may look like. Um, if you've only got one or two members or employees in that one specific role in your business, then chances are the skills framework is going to be quite generic and not tailored enough towards you as a business. Um, for example, a sales development representative at a 50 person organization does a very different job to a sales, the same role at a 10,000 person organization, for example. Um, and so those skill sets are going to be slightly different. Um, but a very simple thing to do would be to prompt Bard, let's say, and to create a simple core, skill, core skills framework and then a benchmark for that role. Um, what should an entry level SDR be able to do at your business? Um, and you can then kind of respond to this information by curating some really easy resources that can help those employees that you do have within your business develop those specific skills. This is really easy, low hanging fruit, but also you can create and formalize this framework and then give it to your stakeholders across the business. So off the back of that conversation that you may have had with your sales leader, for example, your SDR team manager, um, they can use this for hiring plans, internal one-to-one -one conversations and any development conversations that they may want to have as well. And where you may have an organization who doesn't yet have competency frameworks for specific roles, for example, there's a really useful starting point. Um, I'm not suggesting that we use AI to kind of completely replace skills frameworks, but it can help us at least 
create a pencil sketch rather than drawing in permanent marker straight away. And it gives us a good opportunity to build something from the ground and then slowly reiterate it over time. And often that first leap is what lots of L&D teams struggle with. Um, benchmarking and creating frameworks across a business that isn't super mature just yet or isn't yet ready to implement it because they haven't perfected some of the other finer elements. That can be quite a big task to undertake. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it, Alfie? It feels a bit daunting. Um, it can often take time and it's a real dilemma between delivering value in the short term, helping people achieve goals in the short term. And like you said, if you're not at that point where you can map out every competency, something like this, especially if you're creating a new role, we realize that we need X role in the teams if we're going to scale. And you can really use that to sort of look at the live job data and understand the skills that are in demand. Um, and I'll be remiss of me not to mention that that is built into how now as well as yeah. part of the skills framework that it analyzes live job roles to help you understand what is in demand. But like Alfie said, as an MVP, you could definitely go away and, and put that into um, a tool. But my advice would be that you get out what you put in with AI. And, and Alfie was perfectly right there about the context of the role. You have to be specific about what you want from AI. So give it as much context as possible, as you'll see on the screen, this quote from Philip Lamb, who we had on the podcast for a dedicated chat about AI and L&D. But the big takeaway was, unless you're very specific about the prompt you're giving to AI, you won't get useful data back. So what's the size of your company? Is it a new role? Is it a growing role? What's the industry that you're in? Um, even if you've got some loose context around the goal that, that a person is working towards, the more you can be specific. And actually, I would treat it as a not one and done approach. I would iterate every time you yeah. do use a piece of AI like this, because it will take a few goes before you get the, the sort of output that you want. Yeah, I think as well, um, AI is a really good example of how skills actually develop over time. Um, if you were to ask me a year ago when I started as a product marketing manager, whether AI and ChatGPT was going to be a skill that I'd need to learn, I'd probably say no. Um, whereas the skills market has changed so much that now lots of product marketers are leaning on AI and learning and teaching themselves that skill and how to prompt them is a skill on itself as well. No, 100%. Yeah, it's, um, you have to be that AI whisperer. And I would love to know mm -hmm. actually how anyone in the chat is using AI currently, if it's helpful to you. I know I've spoken to a few sort of single person L&D teams who are really finding it useful for curating content or scaling things, or like you said, just then Alfie analyzing the current situation and what's really relevant. The next part is all about reviewing our tech, our tools, and our processes. So one of my favorite sayings is what got us here might not get us there. And it's always so true with tools that we're using or the processes we have in place, especially if we've worked out that the goals or skills that we need have shifted or the problems we have to solve have moved. We have to really ruthlessly ask ourselves whether our tools and processes are still fit for purpose. And I think it's often easy to assume that this isn't a problem that's affecting us, but like that internal mindset of a company, but 57% of employees in a survey said they were frustrated by legacy tech in their organization. So to some degree, there will be an outdated tool or tech. And I don't know if anyone's had experiences with that's the way we've always done things being like a motto internally. Um, you know, there's a real sometimes that just, like I said, it's a hamster wheel. You're stuck on doing something the same way. The tech supports that. And unless we take a step back and go, look, does this really help us solve the problem anymore? And that is why we shouldn't stay with tech for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we need to break up with tech. And I don't know if anyone feels like this, but I'm definitely guilty of staying with a piece of uh, tech or a tool that no longer feels like it ticks every box, but it's convenient. And there's a I'm worried about how long it's going to take me to get up to speed with the new tool. And this often, I think, is quite prevalent in the L&D space a lot of the time. Mm. But Alfie, I'd love to know, I mean, I'm sure you've, product marketing is a space that is quite tool heavy a lot of the time. And yeah. How are you finding this process and any tips on not staying with tech for the wrong reason? I think it's a good question. One of the... Um... One of the things I think that people tend to think of is like 
there's that inaction or that unwillingness to change. I guess, I guess it kind of ties back to your original point, but there's this sunk cost fallacy that I've already put so much energy and time into using this. It solved a previous problem and therefore it should be suited to, to solve my current problem. And there's something wrong with me. And occasionally it is just because of an adoption or an education, or you're not sure what the tool actually offers. Um, but one of the most kind of useful things that I've done is actually just seen, let's say for example, I'm creating product launch materials for a brand new product launch that's happening. Where am I actually going to put something and is it still required? And does it actually add value to the person who's going to be using it? And um, often it can feel like you're kind of filling the void and um, for the sake of doing it rather than actually finding it to be really practical and meaningful, um, which kind of ends up with you wasting your time on using something for no real reason other than for yourself and your own kind of process and habit almost. Um, and your unwillingness to move away from that is often because it's either seen as convenient or just something as, you know, I've put a lot of energy into this and the sunk cost fallacy comes back again. Um, I guess one of the most useful things that I've ever done is just say to myself, does this actually matter? And if so, to who? And that's kind of where you can kind of jump off to. Um, if you're only doing something for yourself and it kind of helps you and supports your own workflows and processes, and you're still happy to keep kind of placing lots of emphasis and energy into it, then by all means do it. Um, if it's to others, perhaps, who don't necessarily see lots of value in what you're doing, then you can do it. You can get rid of it. <laughs> you can often just kind of toss it to the side or slow down your output with that specific thing until people ask for it yeah i think sometimes it's that sunk cost fallacy plus do i want to be the owner or the driver of new tech or, or tools because obviously there's a cost associated with that and if the culture is not right internally that can feel like there's a pressure where you know if this if we bring in this new tool and it doesn't perhaps work could that come back to me and i, I feel like that's a common sentiment as well that doesn't always help um that conversation yeah. The other important thing is uh, the reason a lot of legacy tech, I think, frustrates people is because it doesn't meet us where we work. There's this real dilemma at the moment that basically more than 50 percent of people want to learn at their point of need. But we're constantly switching context. There was this Asana research that said we're switching on average between 10 apps 25 times a day. And that context switching, because things aren't meeting us where we work, makes things a lot more difficult and as you would have guessed already I love an example so I have prepared one in in the sense of this story if your team the customer success team establishes that a problem for them is their satisfaction scores and we dig a bit deeper and we learn that part of that is they don't respond quick enough to queries and close tickets quick enough they might tell us that a big part of it is that they keep having to leave the tool where they're supporting people like intercom or something similar to find the right resource, which adds time. And then also once they get out of that system, they also can't find what they need. So there's more of this context switching. So if we've got, in that case, a tool that fails to integrate with Intercom or HubSpot and fails to bring together all that scattered resources, the current tools add more friction and they don't help the team achieve that goal. So that's one of those situations where problem discovery plus the ruthless mindset that Alfie mentioned of, does this matter and to who? That will make it far easier to work out does this actually support people in the flow of work? And I think an easier way to look at it is just with some of the data, you know, like what, what tools are people using? How well do they talk to each other? Which ones give us sort of visibility into performance or where people are trying to solve problems? And Alfie, again, we've, we've lined this up perfectly because it leads us to the next MVP that people can apply um, today. Oh, actually, yeah. I forgot that... Um, I've added a quote, but we'll come back to that later. <laughs> okay. Um, I, we just had a, a comment actually from Kimberly who said that it's important that the tech aligns with how the company works. Um, at your organization, Kimberly, you mentioned that you're growing at ridiculous rates, so needing tech that can provide learning in bite-sized chunks each day. And it kind of this kind of naturally leads to this tech stack piece actually um, quite comfortably. Um, this is an exercise that I really recently did. Um, and it seemed like a bit of a thought exercise, but it was actually really useful um, to identify enablement efforts. So for those of you who don't know what product marketing do, I work a lot with our commercial team, so customer success, our sales team, our account executives, a little bit of everybody, um, and really giving them the materials that they need to get better at understanding how now is a product, but also information about our customers and what their pain points are and how they'd like to learn a little bit more. Um, and this 
um, mapping, almost like service design approach to mapping out a tech stack was a really useful exercise for me because it helped me to improve the enablement opportunities that were required by our commercial teams. Um, so I did make quite a few shocking discoveries. I was kind of prioritizing things in slightly different ways because it was the way that I'd assumed people would use certain pieces of tech. Um, and actually what I found was that I was planning enablement content discovery through one way and one behavior, when in fact, one of the most useful things I discovered was actually they were looking for it a completely different way. The end result, came to the same point um, that it was always the same material, for example. But what I had to do instead was restructure the behavior. Um, and so what I've done, for example, is changing the way that content is discoverable by making it easier to access through Slack. Um, How now, as an example, we love using Slack for pretty much everything. Um, it's like our home, it's our heart, it's everything that we do in the business. And trying to change that behavior just meant that um, just meant that it was a little bit more tricky for people to actually adopt the material that I was spending time doing. And it wasn't adding loads of value to everybody who was consuming it. Um, so if your organization lives on Slack, how's it there? Make it easy for people to access there rather than trying to change other people's behavior to suit your own needs. Um, and so what I did as part of this mapping exercise was very simply just put together a mind map or some sort of like connected um, kind of overview using Miro or Whimsical. I prefer Whimsical personally, um, it's free, um, but it's a really useful tool for identifying what the connections are between different apps and tools that you currently use within your business. And to see if there's a way that you can streamline that searching or discovery or surfacing problem that people ha might have. Um, so where does Slack connect into our HR tech stack? How does our HR tech stack connect to our learning platform versus our project management tools? Are our product team who live in ClickUp um, as a product management tool, for example, more likely to use Slack to surface their material? Probably. In which case, are there automations that I can then set up to make that material easier for them to find? So ultimately answering the question of how does the learner, the employee, the person or my colleague want to surface the material? And how does it all work together as part of a much bigger picture as well? Yeah, I really like this point, Alfie, about not assuming how people use the tools. It's often even when we get to that point where we map it out, we still can make assumptions about how people use a particular tool. So if you could apply that marketing principle, like normally if a company launches a new website, for example, you do like user sessions where you get people to come in and you don't give them any prompts. You just go find this thing for me. And then you watch how they do it. If there's somewhere you can replicate that internally to see actually what that journey is when people move from Slack and they can't find what they need, where do they go? When do they come back to Slack? Where do they go and apply it? So yeah, I really like this idea. Mm -hmm. Now, two parts left to go. This is probably the real one about impact and measurement. And part four is basically, how do we bake impact into everything we do and everything we roll out? So throughout all of these stages, to some extent, we have done a degree of problem discovery. And that means we have a far stronger idea of what success looks like. If you think of any of those examples, me or Alfie share, we know what a win looks like to the person we're trying to help on a business level, on a department level, on an individual level. And that essentially allows us to work backwards and make sure impact is baked into any experience. So as we like with our PR example, we need to achieve A and people need skill B or information C or knowledge D. We can essentially apply that to the content we create, the strategies we build, the experiences we roll out and design and progress back from that to reach the outcome. Now that not only gives us a stronger understanding of what success looks like, but we build a far better business case for why people should be invested in L&D, because essentially we're building stories around a problem to be solved and how we help solve it. And there's a real human in that situation as well who can tell the story. And lastly, on our problem discovery point, it also gives us a real strong North Star and a progress-focused way to push back either against ourselves or other people. So if we know exactly where we need to get, we can ask ourselves when we're tempted to try a new idea out or try something new, Will it help us get to where we want to be? And once we've done problem discovery with a department, they come to us and say, can you give us this training? We can say, will it help us get to that goal that we sat down and agreed together collectively? Now, Alfie, I know you've worked with so many teams on tailoring their efforts toward impact. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that situation. Yeah, I think 
I always always say to people that impact is a funny word because it's, it's quite subjective. Um, for like L&D teams who are like career movers, perhaps away from like teachers, and I know that there are quite a few of them, um, they're probably familiar with things like learning objectives and learning goals when it comes to lesson planning. Um, but an exercise that's really useful is also about setting almost like an impact goal. Um, because they're so subjective they often vary um, depending on what the end goal of it is so let's say we'll use your PR example um, we're trying to increase a specific skill but the end result there is going to be more sales off the back of a product launch because our marketing team have improved their PR knowledge for example now there are other learning initiatives and programs and problems to be solved that might need users and employees to exhibit a behavior change for example and um, whether this is kind of more alignment with diversity equity inclusion or with your organizational values or improving employee engagement with learning and development um, or very simple compliance purposes to ensure that your employees are actually compliant with your current regulations and all of these are very valid and very different impact angles to be able to tell and so like the importance of baking in that impact question of how does this help move the needle? It may lead you to kind of deprioritize some things that people have said are important, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a priority for the business. And if you're able to really align with the rest of the teams on their financial targets, their employee targets, what kind of change that they're trying to exhibit across the business, then that's how you're going to be able to actually map impact back to the efforts that you push out. Yeah, no, 100%. And like you alluded to there, impact means different things to different people. So we, as Kevin M. Yates said to us on the podcast, and you see on the screen here, impact is what you define it as. And if you don't define it, it's going to be very difficult to measure. So I think setting that ground rule, or those that clarity at the start around this is what impact looks for, like for us, if we succeed, this is how we know we got there. And I think the other part is not seeing that as the finishing point, like once you get to that point of impact don't just get straight back on the hamster wheel yeah. it's about how do we tell the best story about that success so you know we baked in this impact data we knew what success would be like we have the numbers but then how do we know go and find that human perspective and say you know this person not only improved their number of deals closed if they're in the sales team but actually they feel more confident and actually they feel more like a subject matter expert now because that skill they built helped them go and speak with other people in the team and share that knowledge with them there's going to be all these different human angles that support the data so if you can build a compelling story think of it as like a customer testimonial if you're a marketing team or um, something like that it would be what's the narrative here you know how do we get from point a to point b but what was the personal story to that and once you combine all of them you build a real strong business case for why people should be invested in LD. and actually alfie you have the perfect framework i think to help people determine that human element yeah so um in product marketing and product management we use a uh, something called job stories and these are very simple boiled down and concentrated stories about let's say a user but what we're trying to do here is instead reframe the change or behavior or impact that we want to exhibit are following our learning materials so if you go back to your original coffee chat um, with your leadership um, and with different team members for example you can use the information that you've gathered to really boil it down into a job story that helps you focus your effort and what your tactic is going to look like. But it also helps give you the impact and the building blocks that you need for that narrative angle that Gary just mentioned. Um, so if you use like a SDR as an example or a new starter, um, you can use this very simple framework. It's when I do XYZ, I want to XYZ, so I can XYZ. And these very kind of simple three prompts help you frame the effort and identify the impact and potential measurements. So going back to SDR, for example, when I'm on a call with a prospect, for example, I want to be able to negotiate more effectively or more confidently, for example, so I can close more deals. And that instantly sets you up for a little bit of an overview of what the person wants to achieve. This training is for an SDR, for example. They need to improve their confidence and their ability to negotiate so that they can close more deals. This gives you 
the skill set that and the information and the knowledge that that person needs to be able to act out their goals and be able to actually achieve them. And these job stories are very common for product marketers and product managers um, who create technical solutions to problems that customers face. So I create them a lot with our product team, for example, when it comes to redesigning certain elements of the product, um, but also when it comes to taking on board customer feedback as well. Um, and this really helps shape your effort so that you're not concentrating on too much with too little resource but also actually keeps your narrative focused on the specific thing that you're really hoping to achieve i really love this one as an mvp alfie because i think a lot of the time we think we need to really dig into all of the data and be like you know at the moment we close 80 percent of pipeline if we closed 82 but really this is a real simple way to find what problem is at an individual level and some sort of aspirational as well, which helps you build better stories like we spoke about. So as far as like a low touch way to, to drive more impact, solve more problems, I think this is a perfect one. Yeah. I just want to remind people that we are going to do small Q&A at the end if anyone's got any questions because we've just got one final part of the framework left. So if anything's come to mind throughout this, feel free to drop it in the chat as we're going through this last section and then we will come and get to it in a couple of minutes the last section is a very simple one and it's essentially how you find your influencers your advocates the people who love what you do already in your business now we spoke about single person lnd teams already but even bigger lnd teams it's really difficult and more difficult for lnd teams to do everything we've spoken about without buy-in and help from other people in the business you know no brand or message is built without those people who advocate for it and share it with others L&D teams can't often create or curate all the content they need, but collectively we can do that. And also it's hard to reach our goals without strong relationships because how are we going to push back and define problems effectively or get people to try things and fail in order to build new skills if we've not built that strong relationship with them? So the bottom line is really that we need to help people feel more connected and invested in our mission. And when they're involved earlier, the more invested they become because they've got a real sense of ownership of it and belonging. So I think it, it leads really nicely into this quote from Hannah Wadhams, who's from Mass Marketing, focus on marketing for L&D. But if you've got people in your organization who are already advocates, they'll be quite clear who they are. So other people will be name dropping them when you say who's the best person to speak to about X. There'll be social signals that Alfie is going to explain with a bit more in a moment, but other people will be resharing their content they'll get more engagement on their messages there'll be people who are already telling a story about i did x through learning and it helped me to some degree improve my performance or my confidence so really i think i'll hand over to alfie to explain this this idea of what the social signals are what are low touch ways we can find out who those advocates are already yeah um so i am by nature, a very nosy person. And um, one of, the, I guess, the greatest skills that I've learned as a product marketer is being able to listen to what people are talking about um, without being too nosy. Um, and one really easy thing that you can do is spend 10 minutes, probably over the next couple of days, um, to have a look through some calendars. Um, if, for example, you work at a business where you can see everyone's calendar, I know Hannah is one of them, for example, um, I can be nosy and see who's hosting a training session with the rest of their team, for example, who's doing a product knowledge or education session with our customer support team, um, which person is running an SDR workshop with their new starters and who's looking after onboarding for that specific team. And often you'll notice repeat people who are involved in that process. Those people are often very inspirational. The rest of the business loves to learn from them or they're really good coaches and they have really good um, communication skills and they're able to share information with people when they naturally absorb it. Um, and this is a really easy way of finding people that already kind of put learning at the forefront without really calling it learning. And those are really good influencers within the rest of your business. The other thing you can do is if you're using Slack, set up a custom notification. Um, you'll notice that sometimes people will exclude learning and development from training, education, learning opportunities. Um, it can sometimes feel like they want to gatekeep certain things, for example. They may not necessarily have the wherewithal to reach out to learning and development to help them structure something. Um, and set up a custom notification on Slack that triggers for certain words 
So I get one, for example, um, when uh, the rest of the team are looking for something about enablement. Um, they'll mention enablement in a public channel, for example, and I'll get a notification and a link to that message that says this person asked about enablement. It's very easy to set up inside Slack and gives you insight into how people are asking, but also helps you understand the language that people are using to describe the knowledge or skills that are missing, for example. Um, and then you can kind of swoop in and say, I'm here, use me. You know, that's a perfect point, Alfie, because it, it, we've spoken about it on a few other episodes. It's not necessarily related to this, but speaking like your audience is the best way to make a connection with them and help them discover your content. So if we see that, like Alfie said, every time someone's asking a question, they're using a particular phrase, they might say deal closure or they might they might write negotiation. If we ditch the assumptions on how we think they're going to phrase it and just listen to how they're phrasing it, the content we create will be far more um, direct, far more relatable, far more applicable in the flow of work. We spoke about this earlier. So yeah, I find that really interesting. And another point actually that relates to, if anyone listened to last week's episode, we're talking about learning budgets. And um, Benita, who joined us, made a great point that budgets aren't necessarily always money. It's about maybe finding people that have internal expertise, freeing up time for them to um, share that more widely internally. And, you know, like if you see in the, in your calendar that people are running these upskilling sessions with people in their team, they are your advocates already. And it's more just giving them a platform and the time and the confidence. I, I think most people, if you ask them and you engage with them, will be happy to help. Um, you will naturally always find people who are maybe a little bit more obstructive and may not necessarily want to engage, and that's okay. But the vast majority of people within your business are more than happy to help as long as they understand why you're asking. Yeah. yeah. Alfie, I wonder if you have any insights. I just got a, a sort of direct message in the chat, but how can we find skills gaps when there are business problems? So, for example, um, if you've got less clients and, and jobs at the moment and recruiters are maybe not able to hit maybe interview KPIs, for example, what could we do then to maybe help them close some of those gaps? I think probably, I guess I'm going to kind of tie this back to the first point, Would but would probably most likely, I guess what I'd probably suggest is for you to sit down with the people who are either struggling to meet quota, for example, and talk them through what their experience is like so far. Um, now, this might seem quite like a basic response, but honestly, speaking to your internal customer most effectively is what's going to give you the insight that you need to improve those. Let's say, for example, you do have a quota on um, interviews or um, meetings booked, for example, and you see the team members aren't meeting that quota. The first thing to do would probably be to look at your leadership team who are setting those quotas and whether they're actually smart targets and whether employees are actually going to be able to achieve those. But the second portion would be to figure out why they're not actually meeting those targets. Yeah. Um, it could be a number of different skills that factor into those elements. It could just be a matter of confidence and an additional coaching is all that's needed. Um, but there are quite a few variables. Yeah. Yeah, I think it goes down to maybe just widening the problem discovery so yeah. for example it could be that there's a general trend in the industry that it's just a quieter period and your competitors are possibly facing the same problem so sitting down with the person to to really dig a bit deeper maybe understand if there are any sort of short-term fixes you could aim in that direction what's the industry trends i like are we going to come out of that in the the longer term i think that is um yeah it's kind of simple but because it's so It'll be so unique to the situation, won't it, in terms of how do we um, help that person overcome that hurdle? We're pretty much out of time, Alfie. So I just want to direct people to the death of the LMS guide, which we published recently. It kind of tackles a lot of what we spoke about today in terms of breaking down friction and centralizing learning, helping bring knowledge to the flow of work, why people don't love legacy tech and how we can kind of build a skills first approach to LD that will be very sustainable in the long term, helps us close skills gaps by not putting the content first, but putting the skills and the individual first. So I'll also send out the link to download this in the show notes um, and the post podcast email. So um, if you didn't get a chance now to, to scan it on the screen, then um, yeah, you'll still get that link sent to you.